Welcome to MQ's Open Mind, the show where we look at the science behind mental health and its potential to transform lives. I'm Hannah Myerson. Social media, is it good or bad for our mental health? We've been swamped with headlines talking about how damaging platforms like Facebook, Twitter and Instagram are to young people's well-being. But the fact is there's a lack of research and social media is constantly evolving. Today I'm going to be delving into some of these questions with James, who became a mental health campaigner after his own experience of OCD and eating disorders, and Amy, a psychologist who's looking into the effects of social media and technology on human interaction, well-being and relationships. Thanks so much, you guys, for joining me today. I just wanted to start by asking you a general question, which is, what is your favorite social media platform and why? Mm. James, I'm gonna start with you. I think it's quite easy for me. I think it's Twitter, because rather than Instagram, it's not so much about the visual and it's more about the kind of meaning or it can be about the meaning and putting out ideas rather than something that could be seen as quite superficial. So I think Twitter's been quite helpful as a mental health campaigner to get in touch with journalists and politicians and pushing forward an agenda, although it's definitely within a narrow bubble. You know, if you want to influence people um, in the media and in politics, they're all on Twitter. But how far does that go outside of that arena? I don't really know. But also it's been a source of validation, I think, because when I started sharing my story and putting it out there, having other people say yeah that was my experience too was really affirming to me and having people think that what I had to say was helpful made me think that yeah maybe my voice can be heard or has a place in this arena as well. Amy what about you? I'm gonna be really boring and say Twitter as well so I was like oh no now now we have Twitter now but yeah I think it's definitely Twitter for me as well it's a big part of my job and it really allows you to connect with groups around the world um, who share interests and bounce ideas off each other so it's kind of outreach to populations, as, as you were saying, James. And I think for me, it's also a lot of community building and friendship building that has happened over Twitter. So I now go to conferences where you're kind of there in this awkward state of being like, I know you from Twitter, but like, should we hug? Should we <laughs> shake hands? Like, whatever. But yeah, um, so I, it's definitely Twitter. So James, I wanted to start with you to ask you a bit about your own experience of mental illness when it started and I suppose the point you realised that you maybe needed help. Yeah, I think when I was around 13 or 14, I started to really struggle with coping in a day-to-day kind of way with obsessions and compulsions. And for me, I got to the stage where I didn't go to school for nearly a year and got away with it really nobody really noticed until it came to the end of the year parents evening and it all came out that I hadn't been going and because mostly I was concerned about my appearance and that I couldn't go into public spaces because I thought I was so hideously ugly. It was sort of a body dysmorphia thing which was associated with a lot of different obsessive and compulsive behaviours. But yeah, then then I knew that there was a problem because I thought, actually, I'm not functioning and this isn't normal. But somehow I justified to myself for that whole year and the time before when these things were sort of emerging that it was normal and that, that this was just me and I was shaping my life around it and I realised that I did need to get help because it wasn't normal to not be able to go to school and um, that's when I sort of started my journey in mental health services and trying to get help which wasn't always a very positive experience and it seemed that things shifted from my outer visual appearance to specifically the weight and the shape and I'm not sure whether that was to do with feeling like I wasn't being heard and understood as though when I did 
go and get help in um, child adolescent services. It was very superficial and not looking at the underlying emotions. And I felt that whilst they recognised I had a problem, they weren't looking at the person underneath the symptoms. So maybe somehow the shift was an escalation to something that was really visible with anorexia. I don't know. But from that point onwards, I've struggled with eating problems for the rest of my life. And I've become very, very good at living with an eating disorder and building a really positive life doing things like this outside of that. But when I step out of it and think about, is this really desirable? Is this really the life that I want? I realise that, no, it's not normal to behave in the way that I do. And people often ask me, when, like, why did you get ill in the first place? And there's never one factor, but I think we often look for just this one event or a nice, neat explanation, a lovely packaged uh, narrative as to this is why I got ill, and then a lovely narrative about getting better. But in some ways, I think that the drip-drip effect of lots of cumulative experiences over a long period of time can be more impactful over time. I think, obviously, we're speaking a lot more in the public about mental health, but what I find really interesting to ask people who have direct experience is what do you wish more people realised? What kind of messages do you wish were out there alongside the fact that we should be talking about it and be more open? I think one thing that really frustrates me, I could start with that, is that there tends to be very sort of individualistic narratives around mental health and that a mental health problem is something that is all about the individual person or some kind of, maybe some kind of weakness or some some difficulty happened to them. And the recovery part is all about their individual strength and them overcoming the adversity and finding something within that helps them to power through and all this kind of stuff. And I don't really buy into that because I think that recovery especially depends on the support that you're able to get and maybe mental health problems arise from factors in the environment as well so I think that I get very tired of that narrative and in terms of the media that you're talking about the sort of public discourse around mental health I think that we do talk a lot more about it and I don't think a very diverse range of voices get heard and that's not just sort of in terms of ethnic background or different backgrounds in society I think it's also that the media likes the sort of acceptable face of mental health and I feel I'm lucky to have my voice heard because I sort of fit neatly into that category. I can explain my experiences relatively well. (laughs) But I think that, you know, they also want somebody who looks relatively appealing and has a nice story that can be portrayed as recovery and getting better. And I don't think that the media or, or the public really want always to hear about people who are still struggling. And I do a lot of interviews about mental health where people ask me, how did you recover? What helped you? And that's an assumption that I have recovered and I haven't completely. I'm in, in a process of recovery. And I think that's something that needs to change as well. Definitely. You are an ambassador for MQ. But I wondered how you found out about MQ and what kind of appealed to you about this idea of mental health research. I think I came across MQ when I was doing um, mental health campaigning, which is something that I got into um, a couple of years ago. And it came out of this period in my life where I suddenly realised that my experience of getting help wasn't good enough. Um, I always felt that I was the one to blame and that and that um, the fact that I couldn't get better was all down to me as an individual. But I, it took nearly seven years to get a specialist psychological treatment for eating disorders. Before that, it was just being patched up in A&E, you know, numerous times. And there was this breakthrough moment where I was just extremely angry and 
somehow that was good because I had a sense that I was worth something and I felt that I deserved better and I didn't know what to do with that anger and the only thing I could do was think of channeling it into something positive. So I got involved with a lot of different campaigns to try and change things so that people hopefully don't go through the same experience that I had in terms of not being able to get support. But along that journey, MQ was created and I came in touch with them. And it was a different dimension to the discussion, I think, because I worked a lot with sort of promoting policies and working with campaigning with Parliament and that kind of stuff. But what are you promoting if you don't know about something and I think that the knowledge is power thing really resonated with me because my experience was that people didn't know what to do with me throughout the whole journey and throughout I felt that it was all sort of a making it up as you go along thing I was told for a very long time that I was too underweight to have any kind of psychological treatment because I wouldn't be able to engage Um, and things have changed a bit now because we have a bit more evidence about that and people would be offered something different if they had my experience now going into services and that's because of evidence that has emerged so I've seen like the power of having good evidence and that it can change and improve things. And how has social media affected your own mental health so have you had good experience with it? Um, I think it's a bit of a mixed bag I said earlier about Twitter being quite helpful for campaigning and this kind of thing and that's been a source of validation. I think it can get into difficult territory if you're using a very visual kind of social media as a source of validation, for example. And it's something that I try and tread quite carefully because it's almost expected as a yoga teacher or even just as a young person to have an Instagram account and to be promoting what you do. Or I share a lot of pictures of me doing yoga, for example. And there's a tension there in terms of how many people do I want to reach and what kind of values am I promoting? And it's not a surprise that the most liked picture on my Instagram by far is one where I, I'm topless doing some yoga, right? And then another one where I'm just like smiling, drinking a coffee or something doesn't um, doesn't get anywhere near as many likes. And for me, that asks me the question of, do I want to go down that route? And for somebody who's experienced eating problems and body image problems, I don't think that's helpful and I deliberately don't do it. Um, and I always try and associate any image that I'm putting out there with meaning it's as much about trying to communicate a message about something that I find value, valuable or meaningful as it is about presenting an image. And the image is kind of the vehicle for me to be able to say something about mindfulness, about life, about sort of self-care, whatever it is. Um, so it's been something that I have to be very aware of. So I think that it's how I use social media that's more important than whether I'm using it a lot. Although if I am using it in a compulsive way where I'm constantly checking, then that does detract from being mindful and one of the big things that helps me in day-to-day life and in being well is being able to focus enough on myself and not to be constantly looking outside of myself for validation. And obviously social media has been in the headlines a lot especially recently. Do you think this is an area that research should be focusing on in terms of how it's impacting our well-being? Absolutely you know social media does have a real impact on on our life and the impact is significant and therefore is important you know and I was quite lucky in my eyes to grow up without computers without a mobile phone until I was 16 or 17 which is quite late <laughs> would be quite late these days but in a, in a sense that gave me a degree of freedom from the pressures of social media and from interaction with other people in that kind of way but it's one of the ways in which we live our lives. It's one of the dimensions in which we live our lives. It's a 
an environment just as much as the built environment. You know, it's this virtual environment and it has just as much meaning and therefore it is as important to research. Um, Amy, you are a researcher in this field. I wanted to first ask you, what made you get into this area of research? So I think the key decision point for me was that I didn't feel represented as a younger person who has used social media since my teenage years. I felt like a lot of the research field, at least five years ago, was written by people who had no clue what social media was. Um, You would read a lot of papers where people would say, oh, yes, well, people use Facebook to meet so many new people they don't know. And I was like, well, I don't really add people, you know, randomly. Um, So I think for me, that was a key part of why I wanted to start studying social media. Um, And then I went and I started my PhD doing that. And I wanted to actually study different types of social media use and how they help us connect us to people. But I quickly realized the whole research area was incredibly unstable. So I would build my thinking on research that I felt like I couldn't trust if I would read it in a lot of detail. And then two or so years ago, so that was halfway through my PhD, these headlines started coming in about social media use and mental health which I felt were hugely overgeneralized from the evidence that they came from. Um, So causal description that social media causes depression, causes harm. um, And this word cause is incredibly loaded in the scientific sphere because we can't, without doing a proper experiment where we divide people into groups and give them social media for their whole life or not, um, we we can't really talk about causes. Um, And I, I, similar to, to James, I think I felt the sense of anger, <laughs> which, which made you start campaigning. And that made me start really working in this field because I felt like there were a lot of things going wrong. And I felt like I could, just by being myself, add something because I had experience with this form of communication. And that really led me into that area. Um, and it's been really good. It's been exasperating, but it's <laughs> um, yeah, it keeps me going. Are there any key findings that you've seen in the five years that you've been doing this research? Is there anything that you've uncovered that you feel might surprise people? I think it would mainly be the lack of evidence that would surprise people. Social media is incredibly complicated and complex. We can use it in a lot of different ways. And there's a lot of nuance to people curating their experience online. Um, But at the moment, we're really just measuring social media use as a kind of time measure, you know, like what we get on our phone, the screen time app. Um, We, I get told every week how much time I spend on my phone, but the sort of time I spend is very different. I have a Sudoku app and I really love doing really difficult Sudoku. So there are weeks when I'm doing one where it goes up by hours and if somebody would just be taking the data off my phone, they would think that week I was doing, like I was on my phone a huge amount, but actually that nuance is lost. And, and that is what we've got to work with in this area because at the moment we don't have this very nuanced information about social media use. So I think this already makes the area very difficult to work with. The one thing I can really say with confidence that we're seeing sex differences. Um, we're seeing now in girls that there's a lot more kind of social media use causing very small 
but they're there decreases mental health but then also decreases in mental health causing more social media use so there's a cycle which we don't as much see in in teenage boys um but so i think that's the one finding i would i would put money on that that um gets replicated in the next few years um but everything else there is there is still so much to be done um because without the nuance about social media use we can do incredibly little to actually figure out what it does i guess also another thing is that it's evolving so rapidly new platforms are springing up everywhere and the trends change as to what we're spending time on so with that in mind how can we make sure that we're doing research that actually applies to that time yeah i think this is really difficult because technology is ever accelerating and science is still stuck in the 18th century you know so um there's a lot that needs to be done and we are probably always about five years behind which is not really the place to be so i think there are some key things that can help so the first thing is to really figure out how we can put questions about mental health in these um mental health and social media use that are modern into these questionnaires quicker because at the moment new technologies come up and they need to first be in the public mind to then get into those questionnaires so i think there needs to be a lot more communication there you know we should now be asking questions about virtual reality augmented reality because that's going to be the next panic in a couple of years time and i think we need to think about as as scientists how can we work more efficiently you know old journal structures are probably not the best way to go how can we be open and transparent and work um more efficiently with stakeholders as well. So I think the kind of traditional hierarchy needs to be broken um, to to actually allow this information transfer to be a lot more rapid. But there's a lot of work to be done. Sounds like quite the task. Mm-hmm. Um, but going back, it was interesting you've used the word panic because I definitely mm-hmm. think that's how it's portrayed by the media. You know, every few months there's a new thing that we're hearing about. And one of those things has been screen time, which you've looked into a lot. A lot of parents are quite concerned with their young kids, you know, having access to screens from a very young age. Is there any evidence there or on a positive note, maybe anything you might be able to say that may alleviate their concerns? Um, The first thing is, is that concern and panic is natural for humans. We've had that every decade, something that grips society and that changes our society from the ground up and from the core. Um, will naturally cause concern. This is kind of part of our human nature. So I think um, we need to respect that and then think about how we best deal with that. But I think what we know with children in screen time is that this kind of diversity of screens and this diversity of children and adolescents. So I often say that parents would never trust me as a scientist if I would come up to them and say, I know exactly how your child is going to react to eating a gram of sugar because we know that that will be different for each child. If a child is a diabetic, that might be horrendous. Um, If the child is an athlete and just came off the sports pitch and they eat a chocolate bar, that might actually be really important for them. So by just telling blanket statements that screen times causes X or Y, it's devoid of all meaning because it really depends on the child and it really depends on the screen time. And so I think what is really key to say there is parents are in the prime place to put their child first because they know their child. So we need to empower those who can make the decisions to actually reflect about what their child is doing or we as adults or adolescents who reflect about what we are doing and then make those choices ourselves 
because if science can't tell us what to do yet then we need to empower those that that can make the best decisions and that's not somebody writing a book or somebody on a media program telling you that screen time is horrendous it's probably the people in the day-to-day so I think there could there could well be people who are very negatively affected or there can be content online that can be very negative to to a large proportion of people or a selection of people um, so it's really on an individual basis at the moment. Um, but I think across the board, we don't see anything that is as horrible as most of the media portray. So we, if we look at the correlations between social medias and well-being, they are extremely small. So if you would pick up a teenage girl off the street and tell me how much technology she uses on a day-to-day basis, I can only predict about 0.4% of her well-being. So it's a very small amount um, and so there are a lot of other factors in the environment that probably play a much more important role. So what are your next steps going forward what are the priorities for building a better understanding of how social media affects our mental health? So in the next month or so I've got a paper out which is longitudinal so we've tracked adolescents over seven years you know social media doesn't just cause lower lower life satisfaction in that paper but it's actually also the other way around so lower life satisfaction causes more use so it tells us that there's a more complex story and then I think going forward we need to think about what are the adolescents who are actually most negatively affected and what predicts that Um, because you know can we find the diabetics (laughs) that we should actually target ASAP Um, and then I think even on the longer term um, we need to think about the different types of technology and social media use. And I think this will only be possible once we've figured out an ethical um, and a scientific framework for working with social media companies and their data. If we could get access to that data and we could figure out a way to do that in an ethical way where we can get consent, um, and I think that will have to be through policy, that's something that me and my colleagues are working on, but that would be a huge step forward for the field um, because then we'll start actually seeing the picture, (laughs) the full picture. And instead of just trying to use measures that we know are wrong and we know are limited um, and we just need to work with because that's the only thing we've got. It sounds like there are some very important steps to be taken. So you'll have to keep us updated with your progress. Uh, In the meantime, I wanted to move on as our wonderful supporters have sent in some brilliant questions for you both. And I'm going to start with one that came up quite a lot which is this idea of social media and particularly platforms like Instagram having a really negative impact on our self-esteem, even if we know that rationally pictures are edited and people are very much filtering out the best moments in their lives. Several people asked how, despite knowing this, it can still make us feel inadequate or shake our own sense of self-worth. I think young people that I've spoken to and and people that I, I speak to anyway are quite savvy about the fact that this is not a realistic representation of people is their best life that's behind the lens might look completely different. And I think people know that Photoshop is used and that this is like the 500th attempt of the perfect handstand or whatever, and that it's just a snapshot. But I still think that the question is really interesting that why do we still get affected? And I think it reminds me a lot about other forms of media, like, like advertising, and that you, you're just taking in and taking in and taking in. And you, even though you know what it is and you know it for what it is you still get affected and one thing that personally really annoys me is food advertising and how it's sort of everywhere and when you see these adverts for delicious food that's like dripping and it's probably really expensive um 
you have those physiological responses in your body that you didn't ask for and you didn't ask to see that information in the first place. So it's almost like a violation of your body, I think, in some ways. And it's it's for um, sort of corporate gain, isn't it, and for, and for profit. But there must be some kind of similar response when we see things that trigger us psychologically on Instagram or on, on social media that maybe they make us feel inadequate. Maybe the comparison is automatic and we like, yes, I don't have that body, for example. And whilst we can then go through the process of writing it off and, and rationalizing it out, we still had that almost gut response and as much mindfulness as you have and as much ability to explain and be aware that it's not necessarily real, you still have that um, response. And maybe the only way is to not expose yourself to it and deliberately not look at those accounts or not look at things, you know, and, and I do, find that I've done that in my experience just unfollow things that I find unhelpful to see because I don't if I don't need to expose myself to that then why why should I just take it off the next question is uh is there evidence to suggest that different platforms have different implications for our mental health um yeah short, short answer is um no long answer is there was some research put out by Royal Society for Public Health, I think two years ago, which caused massive waves, which said that Instagram was the worst for your mental health. And they actually just went around to a couple thousand teenagers and asked them, think about Instagram, how does that influence your FOMO, your sleep? And these were one item questions on and your self-awareness, um, self-esteem. And then they asked, now think about Twitter, now think about LinkedIn. And they did these, I think it was 13 questions. Um, and this even made it into The Economist. And this is something that first got me very angry. And <laughs> this was one of the first studies that, well, because I felt like it wasn't even a study. It wouldn't have been published in the scientific literature. But charities just seem to press release these things. And then they get a life of their own. And I've been battling against this study for <laughs> uh, multiple years now. Um, I think that there will definitely be differences. I think there just haven't been studied to an adequate amount for me to say that there is evidence that there are differences. Um, again, because it will be very individual to what you use Instagram for, what you use Facebook for, what you use Twitter for. I think, I mean, I don't know about the research and everything, mm. but surely it's just very individually different. When I go on to Twitter, which I find my favorite social media platform, I just get a lot of people agreeing with me, which is really, really nice. Um, if you're a politician, you go on Twitter and you get thousands of hate comments, you'll get sort of threats on your life, you know, so the, the context must just be so different. Yeah. Um, the question of regulating our social media use was another one that a lot of our supporters asked about. So once we've got all of the evidence that we need, do you think there could be a world where we have recommended time limits or guidelines for social media and technology use in general? Yeah, so the question about screen time guidelines and exact screen time guidelines have been omnipresent in the kind of policy side of the conversation for, I think, two years now. So we had when Jeremy Hunt was still health minister, he really, really wanted to get tight screen time guidelines like alcohol units, you know, something like that for screens. Um, and then when Matt Hancock took over, he took on that project. But the project was supposed to be done, I think, years, two years, a year ago, and it got extended. And then in the end, they, they outsourced the decision to the chief medical officer, so Dame Sally Davies, um, who really did a great job in bringing all the scientists around a table and really discussing what the evidence says. How can we actually get to a, a guideline of amount of time? 
And she actually needed to withstand quite a lot of pressure internally to say that we don't we don't have that evidence yet to say you should spend X hours or minutes on screens because of that diversity, because it could be that only a small amount might be harmful for some people, while for some people who are actively campaigning online on Facebook, creating their you know school climate protests, climate change protests, that might be a huge positive thing. So we shouldn't, for example, have limits that automatically shut down a child's social media after X amount of hours. So she gave some very good advice, which is also available online, kind of saying you should have breaks in between technology use. It should you should really reflect about what it's doing and. And we've seen similar approaches in America. So the American Psychiatric Association put out guidelines at the very early stages, probably five or so years ago, uh, which was kind of two hours is the limit. And that that number still lives on. But they actually retracted that um, because they said that they didn't have the evidence. And they actually found that parents found it incredibly stifling because they couldn't get their child to stick to two hours. And they felt like that was a negative force. So I think once we have that detailed knowledge of different types of tech, different types of children and adolescents and, and adults, we might be able to give guidelines just like we can give different sorts of guidelines to different nutritional guidelines to different people. And we know that some people might need more help with regulating nutrition than others. Um, I think we will get to that point, but we're not there yet. I know that as a mental health research charity, we feel a responsibility to put trigger warnings on our posts. So in cases where the content might be distressing for certain supporters. And related to this, there have been a lot of news stories recently about cases of suicide where families felt that the content people were seeing online may have influenced them to take their own lives. And a question that came in from quite a few people was, do you think that social media companies have a responsibility to do more to protect the people that are using their platforms? I think it's a really difficult one. Um, in terms of like content warnings and stuff like that, then... It, Again, it's so based on people's experience. I feel like I need a content warning for um, things that will trigger body shame. So what, that's 50% of things on Instagram, for example. Um, and that's not, that's never going to happen. And it's not really reasonable either. Um, so that's sort of down to me. Um, I think, again, things around suicide is very, very difficult because talking about suicide in a sensitive way is not going to inspire people to take, take their lives. It's It's probably actually going to validate and, and encourage help seeking but I don't know I think that the one thing that can be done is at least making sure that positive or helpful messages are at the table you know there will always be unhelpful content out there there will always be some kind of like push for pro-anorexia content or um, other things and I think it's just very important that at the moment at least we can make sure that helpful voices are present and so I think it is important that charities like MQ or other, other mental health charities are on social media and that they make their voice quite loud on social media and put out information and um, that can help people be equipped to deal with problems as much as they can go off and see other websites which might be like much less helpful so making sure that there is some decent reliable evidence-based content out there in the mix is something that we can do yeah, I think um, I think there are conversations that really need to be had. I oftentimes find, and this is you know not speaking directly to any of the horrific stories that we we hear in the media, um, but I do find that blaming things on social media is very easy for politicians. You know, there's a lot of things going on in this country that are probably not positive. There are a lot of things that can influence the mental health of our population. 
And social media is a really easy target in a sea of other things that should be improved and should be holding more of the conversation. So I do I do get exasperated sometimes when they're especially politicians decide that they social media is the one thing that needs to be changed to ensure that all teenage girls will be fine. And I think that is where I'm just concerned is that we are getting to that stage where people might believe that if we just take away her mobile phone, she will be better. Or, you know, if we just limit their access to certain posts on Instagram, then these horrible things won't happen. And so I think that we need to think a lot more about social responsibility and and this complexity of environment that we can't just single out social media. Yes, we should make sure that it's it's a positive place. And I think conversations are key and maybe regulation will be part of that to really get people around the table and thinking about it or getting enough money for research in or getting data access. These are all things where politics might be helpful, but I do not like the way that social media is becoming an easy scapegoat for a lot of other issues that um, I think should be addressed. And I think social media is a place where a lot of other issues that already exist anyway just play out. So it's not necessarily that the social media is the problem, it's just a vehicle for all other kinds of things that are not being addressed. And those are things that could be addressed in other parts of society, like being able to access mental health services, which are much more important than don't get such a place in the conversation sometimes and what what helps me would would not be changing the social media is how I could change my relationship with social media and that is through things like self-awareness and psychotherapy and this kind of stuff which which don't take place on online for me um and yeah I think it's a very easy way to look at it to just scapegoat social media and finally before we end the episode and while we wait for all of this evidence to come to light what can we do to make our experience on social media more positive for our mental health? James? So this is where I think maybe it comes into education, is that there needs to be a space for young people to reflect on how they use social media. And without it having to be this huge panicking rush to intervene and have a strategy and to tackle it, mm-hmm. there's first of all, the first stage is this awareness and sort of acceptance of, okay, this is how we, we're using it. And I think that that is extremely important. And providing those spaces for people to talk about it and to reflect on it rather than just being a a sort of victim of social media and I think that's how it's portrayed in the media is sort of people being victims of social media and and they don't necessarily need to be they need to be empowered users of social media and and that's through awareness really yeah yeah and I think it's the making it a positive space um, and I think we can all do our bit to to do that, you know, whether that's really thinking about whether that comment is going, how that's going to read to another person, um, kind of what sort of stories you tell. And I think that just for me, something that was so key in my life, kind of looking back as a teenager, and um, you know, I was quite ostracized at school. And for me, it was, I had this key moment where I came across on social media, I was looking up different universities. And like, I think it was Brown University in the United States. They had this video for LGBT students um, about kind of being like, it's okay not to be okay at school. You know, it's okay to feel different and I I'm not part of the LGBT community but it spoke to me because of the first time people kind of told me school isn't everything you know you'll in a couple of years you'll be somewhere else and there you can be whoever you would 
want to be. And I remember watching this video over and over again and kind of gave me that hope. And I think now we're in social media, we can probably make it in, in a space where people can get those messages, you know, where you don't need to look through a website and find a video which kind of talks to you, even though you're not the population that they thought of when making the video. So I think that there is a lot of positives that can be done. And I think for me, it's also part of the reflecting, especially on Twitter, where you can quickly get into arguments. I started really reflecting on, you know, when do I actually raise my voice and how do I raise it um, to make other people feel positive as well and to ensure that we can have conversations um, in real life and online. Yeah. I've deliberately steered away from things that I know will be risky on social media as well in terms of sort of eating disorder content, for example, that is promoting eating disorders almost as a lifestyle choice. There's a lot of that out there and I would like to see social media platforms taking it more seriously, although they're, they're starting to. Um, but on the other hand, there are a lot of pro-recovery um, accounts and the ability to create a sense of community virtually, which is a replacement maybe for a sense of community in a physical way, which I've certainly lacked at some times in my life where I felt very lonely. So being able to have an online community with people with shared values, that does have meaning, even though you're not seeing people face to face. And I think that that's also really important. Thanks, both of you. I think these are some really tangible, helpful steps that our listeners can hopefully take away and put into practice. And it also brings us to the end of this episode. So thank you so much for joining me. And a huge thank you to Herbert Smith Freehills, who have kindly hosted us. And finally, to all of you, thank you so much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. And if you have any more thoughts or feedback, please get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. Please remember that if you have been affected by any of the content on this podcast, the Samaritans are always available on 116 123.